In April of 2019, I had the opportunity to sit down with Roz Grodson and speak with her about her life. We met again just a few weeks later to talk about Emma Goldman and her one-woman show and what brought Roz to want to do that play. In June of 2019, Roz passed away. She was an actress. She was a committed Jew, a Jew who loved learning. She was a devoted wife and mother. Roz was extraordinary. Looking back, we are so lucky to have created these two podcasts to remember Roz and to pay tribute to an extraordinary woman. Roz, first of all, thank you for making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. You have such a wonderful voice. I always, uh, <laughs> I love it when you read for us in the congregation and um, also love to see you on stage. When did you know you wanted to be an actress? It happened when I was about between three and four years old. Of course, I wasn't conscious of it then, but I think it gave me the taste for performing. My Zadie was my babysitter, and he took the job very literally. When my mother said, Pa, keep an eye on Rosie, he took it very literally. And he lay down beside me in the bed and watched me. So he really, he really kept an eye on you. <laughs> well, he was bored, of course, <laughs> with his boater hat on his head and his little hand-rolled cigarette in his mouth. But he was a Muhammad. Uh-huh. He also acted as the rabbi of a small shul in Maywood, Illinois, which had a very tiny Jewish community, but they took in Melrose Park and Forest Park and a few other stray Jews in the county. And he taught the boys. He performed weddings and funerals. He ran the, uh, the social uh, events. And he fired the furnace and swept the floor for $8 a week. But he was my teacher. And on those evenings when he was babysitting, he would compose the little poems and stories and songs that he taught his students in the religious school, the Hader. And he should have been an artist. He was. He was a self-taught violinist. He danced. He loved the Hasidish way of worship. Well, anyway, he wrote. So on those evenings, he would teach me the little songs and stories and poems in Hebrew and in Yiddish. Well, I didn't know the Hebrew, but I was fluent in Yiddish because my grandparents lived right downstairs. They only spoke to us in Yiddish because that was the language of the heart. English was the language of the street. So when an event came up in the shul, he would stand me on a chair and say, Razele, read, and I'd speak the piece. And I loved the feeling I got back. It was so pleasurable to know that I was satisfying people, delighting some. Of course, any little girl who stands on a chair would be delightful in the community. But um, it gave me the confidence that I could perform. And you also fell in love with the bima, or as we would say, the stage. Is that yes, a, yes, standing on my chair. Sort of the Jewish version of Shirley Temple. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So when uh, school started, and anybody would, uh, the teacher would say, who wants to read this uh, notice, the assembly, I always raised my hand because I knew I could do that. And that confidence was an immeasurable gift because it gave me the opportunity to try out for plays, and I always had the opportunity in school. And one time at a PTA performance, a friend of my mother's said, you really ought to give Rosie lessons. And my mother said, well, you know, this was the Depression day. She says, I have uh, two boys. I got to pay for Hader, and you ought to do it. It's your duty. So I enrolled with Esther Sachs, who had a studio in the Fine Arts Building. 
She had been a teacher at the JPI, a very talented woman and a bright woman. The JPI was the Jewish People's the, Institute. Yes, on the West Side, uh-huh, where a lot of people were introduced to culture. And um, she taught me, and she wanted to give me private lessons, which my mother couldn't afford, so she gave me a scholarship. Now, Esther Sachs taught in the method that they teach at Northwestern University. She taught voice, and she taught diction, and she trained the speaking voice, and insisted we practice every day, and I think that's where I developed a voice. But at any rate, I loved the lessons and kept them up until I was through with high school. It started many plays that uh, she gave at a professional theater. It used to be called the Women's Club Theater on 11th Street. Now is the theater that uh, Columbia College uses. Uh, were they Jewish plays? No, no, they were fairy tales and children's novels like Anne of Green Gables and uh, Beauty and the Beast. And and um, I loved it. And when I got in high school, you know, we, I was in the plays. And um, when I finished high school, I had a scholarship to Drake University because they had a contest in all the high schools. They had a good fine arts program. And in all the high schools, there was a competition. And I won for my high school, so I was offered a scholarship. Well, this was a wonderful opportunity because my parents didn't feel it was their obligation to send me to college. They had two sons. As my parents said, we have to sacrifice for the boys. Hmm. But for you, I mean, you'll get married. What's the difference? Well, those were the days. We don't realize how differently we have to think today. Anyway, I... Uh, I persisted through many family exigencies <laughs> and uh, stayed out of school a year to help my parents in their new business. I will leave off. It was required that I help my parents with the new business they were starting in a small town, Kiwani, Illinois. My father was desperately looking for a, a way to earn a little more money. He had been a traveling salesman. He wanted to open up his own ladies' apparel store because that's what the business he was in. Well, I took the year off and then transferred to Northwestern because they honored my scholarship, and um, I was able to matriculate there. And in those days, I didn't have to have too much. The quarterly tuition was $90. Wow. Can you imagine that? No, I actually can't. When it went up to 100 there were such protests among the students. There were snake dances on the campus and bonfires protesting that it went up to $100 a quarter. And you were in the theater department? Yes, absolutely. I was in the theater department. In those days, they did not have film. We had radio and we had theater. Now, I really felt I could have a career in radio because radio was king in Chicago at that time. Uh, due to many advertising uh, uh, reasons that all the main programs were produced here in Chicago. And the big talent pool was here in Chicago. So I would also train to be a radio actor. And I thought that would be my purview. Well, after graduation, my fiancé, who was in service, was uh, mustered out. And in those days, you have to know that life was different for women. You married. <laughs> it was a cohabiting. And when you married, you were expected to have children. Right. Here I am, a middle-class uh, Jewish girl who wouldn't start a family. Also, in those days, we did not permit ourselves, nor did society permit us, to leave our husbands or children to go out at night on our own to be in a play. It's not what nice uh, wives did. I was not resentful. I knew that this was not my time. I'm raising a family, and uh, that was my duty. 
But you believed that you were going to come back to the theater? Always had that belief. In the meantime, I wasn't going to do nothing, but I got a lot of dates. In fact, an agent who at that time, there were agents to do this because it was very popular for women to belong to women's clubs, garden clubs, sisterhoods, B'nai B'rith, Hadassah. That was their social life, and they all wanted programs. So I developed programs of Jewish content, and I would travel anywhere that I could fly home at night. Now, I just made that rule for myself. First place, it was not seemly, postish for a woman to stay in a hotel by herself at night. Secondly, I felt my place was at home. So I went as far as Omaha, Nebraska, Bay City, uh, Michigan. What were some of the shows? Well, I did many of the Eternal Light series uh-huh. as plays. I would do all the characters. I did Sholem Aleichem. I did... Uh, the Eternal Light series was a series by the Jewish Theological Seminary that was right. shown on television at that time. Television and so radio you, before and, then, NBC, yes. And so you would get the script or you would write a script? No, I, know. I sent for the scripts. I have a whole carton of them here. And um, uh, did many of those when they wanted a short program. When they wanted a full-length program, I took it from Jewish literature. There were some original uh, pieces that people were circulating that I did. And then in later years, we had uh, more Jewish plays of content that I did all the characters. It was important to you to do Jewish theater? Important to some of the the bookings I had. The other bookings, like the garden clubs and the women's clubs, I did three-act plays that were shown on Broadway. And some of those were Anastasia, a Helen Hayes show called Mrs. McFing, Tea House of the August Moon. These are plays from the 50s that nobody knows anymore. But I was able to do them. The audiences were really delighted and surprised that they could see the whole play. They didn't know that a reader could do this until they saw it. But I learned at Northwestern. Now they call it performance art, chamber theater, reader's theater, all kinds of fancy names. We just did readings. <laughs> and um, so I stopped doing that because I thought, you know, I'm giving myself bad habits. I'm setting myself up for the next line or the next laugh. You can't do this when you're acting with another person. You have to respond to what they're giving you. So I thought I'd better stop this. This is not good for me. By this time, my youngest, Debbie, was in eighth grade. The women's movement had started, and I felt free gave myself permission to go out and audition for plays. But first, I wanted to make sure I could still do it. So I joined a workshop, an actor's workshop, of which there was only one in those days, and found that it comes back to you like riding a bicycle. (laughs) So I had the confidence to look for auditions. And that was about 1967, and I began getting roles. But of course, I didn't feel I could give myself the permission to let go of my household duties. So before I'd go to the theater, I'd cook dinner and uh, take care of everything I had to take care of and then help Sam in the store because I was working in the store at the dead. But when you're young, you have a lot of energy. You can do a lot. What were some of the roles? Well, I started out in an era where women were not given real-life experience roles. There was always the nosy neighbor or the addled grandmother or the silly aunt. Hardly any characters were written for women that were real. That took a few years. So I played all these nosy neighbors and crazy aunts. Um, 
until they began writing good scripts. Now, a funny thing happened on the way. I had a good friend from high school and college named Florence Stanley. She made quite a name for herself on Broadway and on television. She played Vagoda's, if anybody remembers this anymore, uh, Abel Goda's wife in Fish, or she was, um, she was a character actress. And Mike Nichols hired her for one of his shows, and he became very fond of her, and he sent for her every time he did a movie. She had some part in it. But we were dear friends. Every time Sam and I visited New York for business, uh, because I was his buyer, we met. This one time she's starring in Neil Simon's Prisoner of Second Avenue. She has one of the starring roles. It was a comedy role, one of three sisters who got all the laughs in the show. I had to see the show Standing Room early. It was such a hit. Standing Room only, excuse me. And um, she said one evening, she said, uh, you know, they're going to start touring. And they're going to be in Chicago. They'll need an understudy because they want to hire a local person. They don't have to pay per diem. And uh, she said, maybe I could get you an audition. Mike Nichols has to be in town to put in the understudy to audition them. Well, it so happened I was going to stay over because my son was being married and I had to uh, arrange for the rehearsal dinner and all that stuff. So Sam went back home and I stayed for a week to do the mother of the groom stuff. And she wasn't able to arrange an audition. And Mike Nichols gave me the opportunity to read for the role on the stage of the Eugene O'Neill Theater with his stage manager. And I, she gave me a lot of tips of the way he wanted the scene to go. So I felt confident in the middle of the reading, he said, uh, he was out in the audience, thank you, Mr. Alexander. Uh-oh, this is the kiss-off. <laughs> he said, I think you'll be a great Pauline. Well, that must have been something. I went to the age, to the edge of the stage. It's dark. I can't see anything. Shielded my eyes and said, you'll be in that, Mr. Nichols. <laughs> he said, yes, we're going to California for seven weeks, and then we're going to be in Chicago for a number of months. And, and uh, made me understand that I was to have the role of Pauline, oh, not, the not understudy. understudy. A woman who played the understudy did not want to travel because she had a wonderful contract for a commercial. Do you remember? You can't fool Mother Nature. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So she uh, she wouldn't give up that contract. She wasn't going to travel. Good, that was a good one. So he gave Memorable. me the role, but it's just providential that he was in town that one day was able to cast me. So we did. Now, Sam had to be convinced that I could go to California for seven weeks. I told Sam that, to pretend I was going to summer camp for seven weeks. And uh, he visited on every other weekend. I left food in the freezer labeled for meals. I left 21 meals, all labeled, <laughs> because I felt how uh, Debbie was the only one at home at that time. How will they eat if I don't provide? Well, the time in California was very exciting, working with stars like Art Carney, but I was always treated as that woman from Chicago. New York actors had no respect for anybody who did not work in New York. They had no idea what was going to happen in the burgeoning theater section in uh, Chicago afterwards. So I always felt the onus of being the outsider, but it didn't bother me. I was doing what I loved and uh, doing it well, I thought. And also I was the designated driver because New York women never had cars. 
<laughs> so they had to depend on me to get to and from the theater. We were pretty, you know, we were friendly, but there was always that feeling of she's the one from Chicago. Well, anyway, we got home and we played at the Blackstone Theater for about four months. It was during Passover. I had a Seder at my house before curtain time. We had early Seder because everybody in the cast except Art Carney was Jewish. And, uh, and they all knew how to do a Seder. They were practicing Jews, but they'd all been raised in that atmosphere. Well, anyway, uh, from there was just one thing I want to tell you. At that time when I, uh, the show started, Richard Christensen learned about the audition in New York and how I got the job, and he wrote a piece. And the caption was, Highland Park Housewife Lands Job in Show. Now, Richard Christensen was? Head critic for the Tribune. Highland Park Housewife. Nab's role. How'd you feel about that? Amused. You see, we learned to accept these things. We didn't expect more. Not to refer to me as an actor, but a Highland Park housewife. Now, when I tell people that they think it was insu- it's insulting, Richard would never insult me. He was a good friend to me. He gave me wonderful reviews all the time. So you really have to but understand the times. The, the time. Room. He was speaking as a journalist of his time. And that was a cuter caption, you know, would get people's attention. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. <laughs> well, so from then on. Did this launch your career then? Not really. You still have to look and struggle for your next job in audition. I thought, you know, the telephone's going to ring. Well, it doesn't. But it gave me some, some name recognition, shall we say. And from then on, I, I enjoyed the career that grew and grew until Wings in 1979, which won me the Jefferson Award. And nowadays, it's curious what I tell people. And my director was 26-year-old Robert Falls. What was? Can you tell us a little bit about the plot of Wings for those people who don't know what that is? Yes. Oh, I, I wish we had more time. It's a wonderful story. The playwright, Arthur Copet, uh father was suffering from a stroke and in a rehabilitation institute. He went to visit his father, mm-hmm. and there was a woman in the group therapy section who delighted him because she she couldn't find the nouns but she was she took it with such good humor she said well, that's nuts isn't it and he asked to meet her and he she was not available in her room but he saw a big picture of her walking on the wing of a Curtis Jenny which is the old time airplane from World War One, dressed in jodhpurs and helmet leather cap she was an aviatrix who barnstormed at country fairs doing tricks, uh, you know, on, on the wings. Well, he was more delighted than ever, you know, to, to meet this woman. I don't know if he ever spoke to her, but he wrote this play about a woman who suffers a stroke suddenly, and when she gets to the hospital, she has aphasia, which is you don't understand other people's language and they don't understand yours because you're gibbering. You think you're speaking. Right. There's evidently some kind of a short circuit. So she was frightened to think that she was captured from a flight, put in a strange land where they didn't understand her language and she didn't understand theirs. So the play is largely her inner thoughts. And it was beautiful. 
very well written and very popular with audiences. What's strange to me to this day, I played it at the Old Wisdom Bridge Theater four nights a week. The theater sat 99 people. And to this day, people say, I saw you in Wings. I don't know where they all came from. <laughs> anyway, it only ran six weeks. But it's um, it was a wonderful experience. And winning the Jefferson Award is yeah. a great Well, award. it's the best thing that can happen to an actor as far as awards go. It's, it's our Oscars. So, um, again, from that time on, I thought the telephone was going to ring, offering me roles. No. <laughs> Same old story. In fact, a friend of mine called. The Jefferson Awards were... Uh, televised at that time. So a friend of mine saw it on television, and she called me the next afternoon, and she says, Rosalyn, what are you doing? And I said, ironing. <laughs> she said, what? <laughs> Everything comes back to the yeah. homemaker role. Right, right, right. So um, during a little before this time, I was president of the Sisterhood in Waukegan. I was very young, too young to be president of the Sisterhood, but had nobody else. I was sent as a delegate to the convention in Philadelphia, and the theme was Nasevanashma. We will do and we will listen. Correct. I'm correcting you. How's that? <laughs> Rabbi, no, you got I'm it right. I'm just trying to make sure that everybody knows where this is sure. taken from. And um, there was a lot written about why did they say we will do and we will listen. It sounds more logical to say we will listen mm -hmm. and then we will do. Well, that captivated my imagination. Because I recalled that in my studies in drama, we all read the book that Stanislavski wrote, An Actor Prepares. Now, Stanislavski was the forerunner, the inventor of modern acting, modern style of theater, realistic theater. Until then, it had been very declamatory. And I thought back to Stanislavski's method. He said, you can't wait for the feeling to come. You have to do the action first. You can't wait to listen. You've got to do. Right. You can't understand what to listen until you do. And I recall the lessons in our Judaism. You don't wake up thinking, oh, I can't wait to go and pray. But when you put out the tefillin and, the, and you meet 10 other people in a minion and you uh, uh, put on the talis, you become in the climate of prayer. And it's the same with making Shabbat. We have all the rituals for that reason. And Stanislavski said, it doesn't come by thinking about the character. You can't ponder yourself into a character. You have to take the action, which means, in actor terms, uh, you prepare yourself vocally, you do the exercises, you put yourself in the stance and physical body of the character, and little by little, you take on. But it's all as if. You don't become a character. You behave as if you were the character. Well, this is exactly what Jews do. We behave as if we were worshiping, or whatever our, our faith is, our belief is, in order to assume the climate and be in that world. So Passover is living as if. Right. Standing up on Shavuot to hear the Aser Tatibrot is living as if. As if. Mount Sinai, as if you were at the foot of Mount Sinai. So this is uh, modern acting. Modern acting. So I wrote a paper, uh, which I presented as a lay sermon many years ago. I forget the exact wording of the title, but it's something like learning Torah and the Stanislavski method. <laughs> and I live by that because it has helped me in so many ways. 
I have found that if you square your shoulders and meet people with a smile, eye to eye, you're going to feel better. No matter what your heart is feeling, you're going to behave as if, and you will get a response as if. And I find that in so many little ways. You go for an audition as if you had confidence, as if you were a winner. There's no area of living where you can't practice that. And it is very Jewish to imagine yes. the world not as it is, but as it could be, it could and be. your role in that, to imagine that God is looking for a partner and you act as if you have the power to be that partner. How could we repair the world? But we act as if we could contribute to repairing the world. Which really brings me to Jewish education. <laughs> yes. Because yes. in a way, that's what Jewish education is about, is to build that confidence, to build that body of knowledge, to build um, that vision so that young people could live as if they can change the world, as if we are living our destiny. Mm -hmm. And you and Sam, well, you've been very generous to the synagogue and have uh, created a new chair for us to carry forth education in the best possible way. And that is really just a, a remarkable, remarkable uh, legacy that you and Sam have created for generations to come. So I really can't thank you enough for that. Well, I know that it's important, but it's really our obligation. I don't feel that one gives because it makes you feel good. You give because you're obligated to give. And that's why tzedakah doesn't mean charity, it means justice. Absolutely It's only correct. just that we share. Sam and I have been fortunate we have as much as we want. There's nothing else we need. It's our obligation to share. We would be at fault if we didn't. Well, we are uh, forever in your debt, and we cannot thank you enough. And we'll look forward to seeing you in more roles as we go forward. Thanks so Hopefully. much. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> thank you, Rabbi. <laughs>